Good morning. Welcome to Eastern Shore Baptist Church's podcast. My name is Stuart Davidson. I'm so thrilled that you have decided to tune in this week. I certainly hope that today's message will be both encouraging to you, but also I pray that it will be convicting. You can find out more about our church by visiting www.myesbc.net. God bless you and look forward to seeing you soon at church. How many of you seen that video before? Anybody seen that? I've seen it a few times. I think it's really funny. I think it helps us to understand it's the small things in life that we often forget about that are probably the greatest gifts. Gifts like shoes, gifts like clean water, (laughs) gifts like power, gifts like food. How many of you went and stumbled your way into the kitchen this morning, opened up your refrigerator and it was full of food or a pantry that was full of food? I, I, can, uh, I can only imagine that, that here as Americans, we often take so many things like that for granted because most of the world doesn't have those things at all. And so today, uh, we are going to jump back into this series called The Gift. And of course, the greatest gift is that of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the greatest gift that we as humanity have ever had. It's the greatest gift that we could have ever desired, the greatest gift that we could have ever wanted. I hope that Jesus is the greatest gift of your life today. How many of you are familiar with A Charlie Brown Christmas? Yeah, you watch that every year? aired all the way back in 1965. I really didn't realize that Charlie Brown Christmas was quite that old. Dates all the way back to 1965. It's been airing all these years. I read a story here recently about a group of television executives that were trying to remove a Charlie Brown Christmas from the airwaves. It it airs every single year around this time of year and people crowd around their TVs and, and we watch it for all these different reasons. But these television executives don't want Charlie Brown Christmas on there. If you're familiar with the story of Charlie Brown Christmas, Charlie is trying to figure out a way to, to have the Christmas spirit. And he's wandering around, he's talking to all of his friends. He's got Linus and Lucy and all these other people. And he's trying to figure out a way, where do I find Christmas spirit? And if you remember, Charlie Brown goes and buys that sad little Christmas tree. Remember that little Christmas tree? It's got like six branches. It's pretty terrible looking. Everybody makes fun of him about his Christmas tree. Even Snoopy, his best friend, his, his faithful dog and companion, laughs at him and mocks him. And at the very, towards the end of the Charlie Brown Christmas special, Charlie Brown yells, well, somebody just tell me what Christmas means. You remember that part? And then Linus walks out. Oh, I love Linus. This is the part that the television executives hate. You remember this? Linus reads the story of Christmas from Luke chapter 2. And, and Linus tells the story of God becoming man, becoming flesh, becoming Emmanuel, God with us. And it's interesting that as these television executives don't want to air it for that specific reason, because it reads the Bible on cable television, on, on broadcast TV. It, it's interesting that year over year that the audiences continue to grow as they watch a Charlie Brown Christmas special. They, they, they're not decreasing, they're increasing. Why is that? Why is it? Is it because of nostalgia? Maybe, right? Some of you may be old enough to remember the very first time in 1965 when a Charlie Brown Christmas came over the airwaves. And, and so you remember that and then every single year past that, you just sort of remember the good old days. Maybe you're like me and you just think Charlie Brown's funny And you just think it's just become a part of of your Christmas identity. Our family watches several different movies every single year around Christmas time. We break them out at Christmas. 
My favorite probably is Elf. Any Elf fans? Love me some Elf. It's a good movie. If you haven't seen it, you should. But maybe you watch it for that. But I, I really believe that ultimately the reason why these television executives don't want a Charlie Brown Christmas on is because of Linus's account of the birth of Jesus. Over the past two weeks, we've been talking about the gifts of Christmas. And Jesus is, of course, the greatest gift, but what's in the package, right? How many of you already have Christmas presents under your trees and your kids are trying to go in or your grandchildren are trying to go in? Jet is the sneakiest little, little fellow. That little joker. I can't believe, I, 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 I never criticized my wife, but, but Angela said, I think Jet's going through the gifts. And I said, of course he's going through the gifts. You women, y'all you know how you package your gifts? Like, it, like you used to put them in boxes and you used to wrap them up and tape them up to where kids like couldn't get into them. And now you're being fancy. You've got bags and you stuff like this paper down in it. And all a kid has to do is like reach in and look in and see exactly what he's got. I was like, this is, come on. You've got to up your package game, right? Well, so... What's in the package after all? What's in this package of Jesus Christ? Two, week, two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus giving the, the birth of, of life, the gift of life. I, I say the gift of animation. He's given us life. Uh, last week during our Christmas performance, we talked about Jesus being the light. He's the one that gives us illumination, if you will. He lights the darkness of our souls. He illuminates the dark areas, the sinful areas of our lives so that we can see what our sin is and see our need for him. So he gives us life, just the fact that we have spiritual, physical life. Then he gives us light, and then he gives us his affection. He gives us love, love. Guys, Jesus is love, Amen. Jesus is love. At his core, he's love. And I tell you what, I, I meet more and more believers that kind of forget about that sometimes. That Jesus loves them, he loves me, and he loves people. He loves people that aren't like me. He loves people that are like me. He loves rich people. He loves poor people. He loves people that look different than me. He loves people that look like me. He loves people that smell different than me. And he loves people that smell like me. He loves people from Daphne, from Fairhope. I'm pretty sure from Spanish Fort. I'm just kidding. Spanish Fort people, of course he loves you too. He loves people from everywhere. Of course he does. Jesus is love. So fill in these blanks. God's Christmas gifts through Jesus. He gives us animation, life, illumination, light. And he gives us love, affection. This morning, I'm going to be reading from John chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. You've already read a part of that this morning through our Advent reading, but let's go ahead and read a portion of it again. And we're going to be looking at three distinct key areas where Jesus, God, shows us love, love today through John chapter 1. So John chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That being John the Baptist, Jesus' first cousin, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light so that all may believe through him. He, being John, was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. Verse 9, the true light, that being Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own 
and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now we'll come back and look at verse 13 in particular here towards the end of today's message. But look, John chapter 1 captures God's affection for you, for you and for me. Look at Roman numeral 1. We have John's witness. We have John's witness. God's love was captured in John's witness to the Israelites. John the Baptist was by far one of the most fascinating characters in all of the Bible. Why is John's existence an act of love on God's behalf for us this morning? Well, you have to look a little deeper into the person of John, who he was and his personality. John's existence gives us hope today and a path for us to follow. John's life is a pattern that points us to the love of Christ. Let me show you. Fill in these couple blanks here. Learning about God's love through John the Baptist. Letter A, John's purpose in life was to point. John's purpose in life was to point. In Luke chapter 1, verse 16, we see that before John was even born, he had a purpose. Before John was ever born, before John took his very first breath here on planet Earth, God had a purpose in mind specific to him. Listen to what he says in verse 16. And he, being John, will turn many of their children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. John's purpose in life before he was ever born was to point people to Jesus Christ. With every act, with every thought, with every word, John's purpose in life was to point people to Jesus Christ. It was his whole existence. It was his whole reason for existing. Brothers and sisters, let me share with you a very huge truth. That's our point today. That's your purpose today is to point people to Jesus Christ. A.W. Tozer, I love A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer says that our purpose in life is this. He says that we are to know Christ and make him known. That's pretty simple, right? Our whole reason for existing is to know Jesus Christ and make Jesus known, not just to our neighborhood, but to the nations. How many of you ever wondered and just gotten up one day and maybe you had a bad day the day before and you started thinking to yourself, God, why am I even here? Why did you even put me on planet earth? What's my reason for existing? Is there more to life than what I'm living right now? Friend, the reason why you exist, the reason why you are here is because God created us to know him. And once we know him, we can't help but make him known. Oh my goodness, brothers and sisters, Our purpose in life is to know Christ, to make him known. We are here on planet earth right now to point others to Christ. Look at letter B. Not only do we discover John's purpose, our purpose in life, but we also discover John's pursuit in life, which is to preach. To preach. Again, go back to Luke chapter 1, verse 17, and how was John the Baptist going to make Christ known? Luke tells us that John would turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. John would point others to Christ through preaching boldly. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, preacher, I'm, I'm not called to preach. I've done all the, 
the spiritual gift inventories, and uh, none of them tell me that I am a preacher. I've read in the Bible. I, I, I don't really believe that that's who I am, okay? That's, that's not me. That's not my gift. I, honestly, my spiritual gift is more of a pew sitter. I'm a follower. I'm no leader. That's John's job. That's your job. That's not my job. Okay, well, let me explain that God reveals his love for us and John's existence by providing for us the example of working for the king, teaching for the king, and preaching for the king. Now, if you will, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Flip forward in your Bibles just a few pages, and you'll come to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And we have here the account of Stephen, the very first martyr of Christendom. Stephen is stoned to death, and in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And there arose on that day a great persecution in the church of Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And the they there, that's me and you. These are normal people. Notice that, notice that Luke separates apostles from everyday believers. Okay, he separates apostles from everyday churchgoers. So when Stephen is stoned to death, there's persecution that breaks out against the church. The church begins to scatter, except for the apostles who remain behind. So everybody moves out. Now look what happens. Look what happens. What Satan means to destroy the church actually means to grow the church and to strengthen the church from the Holy Spirit. So what do these ordinary believers do? Skip on down to Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Look into what it says. Now those who were scattered, the me and the you, the normal everyday people, went about preaching the word. They went about preaching the word. That means people that were in the pews, once persecution came, scattered to the outlying areas, and they began to preach the word. They didn't wait for a pulpit to be built. They didn't wait for a steering committee to call them. They went out and preached. They did exactly what John did all the way back in John chapter 1. So if it's good enough for the people of Acts chapter 8, if it's good enough for John in John chapter 1, don't you think it's good enough for us today that we are to be pointing people to Jesus Christ? And what is the most effective way of doing that? Well, we preach. We preach. Now, some of you are thinking, well, Stuart, I, truly, I hear what you're saying, but I really am not trained. I really am not trained. And, and let me say, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. And understand, when I mean preach, I mean testimony. Every single one of you has a testimony. Do you really need to be trained to share your own story? I, I mean, who's going to share your story more effectively than you? As a matter of fact, if I was going to share your story, I'd have to be trained by you to share it. See, friends, God has raised up a testimony in your life. He has given you the training through your existence and your experience to share it. When I say you need to go out and preach Christ, what I'm really saying is share what Christ has done in your life. You don't have to share what God's done in my life because I'd have to train you to do that. But you don't need training to share what Christ has done in your life. So that means that coworker that you've been thinking about and praying about, maybe it's time for you to share your Jesus experience with that coworker. How is your life different today after Jesus than it was before Jesus? That's your testimony. That's essentially what it is. 
When's the last time you shared what your life is like now that you know Jesus as opposed to when you didn't know Jesus? Well, I'll be honest with you, Stuart. I've been walking with Jesus for so long. It's hard for me to, to remember. It's hard for me truly to remember what my life was like before Christ. Now, I got saved when I was 10 years old. That was a pretty good long while ago. Every now and again, I'll give you a helpful practice. It's really good sometimes to sit down and to journal out your testimony. I would, allow, I would really encourage you to make your testimony be about one paragraph. If it's longer than one paragraph, you're probably going to lose somebody. But, but journal out your testimony. What was life like as a child, as a teenager, as, a, as an adolescent, as a man or a woman before Christ? And how are you different today? Preach Jesus. And lastly, we see John's passion. John's passion in life was people. John's passion in life was people. John had a passion for people because John knew that people have eternal value. Do you realize here today that you are the most valuable commodity on planet Earth? You are the most valuable commodity right now. You sitting in the pew and me sitting uh, or standing here. We are the most valuable commodity on planet Earth. In God's economy, there is nothing more valuable than people. There's nothing more valuable than, than who we are. Jesus didn't die for anything else except for me and you. Therefore, in God's eyes, we are the most valuable things. Maybe today you've come into this place and you feel kind of worthless. Maybe today you've come into this place and you don't feel loved. Well, let me encourage you today. Jesus died for you. Your name was on his mind. It was on his heart. He bled for you and for me. You are the most loved thing, the most loved entity, the most loved being that God has ever created. It's us. John's passion was for people. John's message was not just to the down and out, but also to the up and in. John knew that every person is a sinner and that we'll all stand equally needing salvation at the foot of the cross. Friend, what is your passion today? Is it a hobby? Is it a boat? Could it be your kids' sports? By the way, none of those things are evil or bad, but if those things supplant the passion that God has given to us from the moment we were created because Jesus died for people, if we take all those things that we think are fun and good and we say, well, they're more important than a person, than an individual, than a human life, then, friend, we have got things really wacky. People are important, and we should love them. Believe it or not, God shows us a great deal of love through the example of John. Imagine for a second, imagine for just a second that you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt what you were created for and what your purpose was. How would that change your existence today? If you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know why I'm here on planet Earth. I finally understand why God put me here. How would that change your existence? What if you knew exactly what you were to do here on planet Earth? Think about, for a second of how much peace you would have if you were assured through faith that God has a reason for you to be here and he's got a purpose for you being here. Well, friends, G John's life is our example. Point people to Jesus. Preach the word of God no matter what your vocational job is. Remember, God loves people and so should we. Listen to Jeremiah 31.3. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've continued my faithfulness to you. That word was shared to the Israelite people, God's chosen people. We are God's chosen people today. And so the promise of that verse, the principle of that verse 
holds true for us now. So let's go to our next point. We see John's witness. John 1 captures God's affection for you through John's witness. And then we also have it captured in Roman numeral 2 with Jesus' war. In verses 9 through 11, it tells us the true light which gives light to everyone was coming to the world. This was an offensive. God was on the move. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him and the very people that he came to didn't receive him. So we have this offensive that God has created some 2,000 years ago and we have a revolt from the world against Jesus Christ. Some 2,000 years ago was a great invasion, the greatest invasion of the history of the planet, a war actually born of love, an almighty rescue mission of biblical proportions. And we often mark this event with songs and snow and trees and lights. And it was a great time, surely, of great joy and great light. The gift of Jesus had been sent to earth. He was and is Emmanuel, God with us. And during this season, we remember all the the beautiful parts of the story, but we never seem to remember the worldly, satanic revolt that happened as a cause of Jesus coming to earth. We don't ever talk or preach about the infantile genocide perpetuated by Herod. We don't focus much on the clueless innkeeper who missed the sign that Jesus was born and that he was coming to Bethlehem. Instead, he kicks Jesus out into a manger. Oh, my goodness. We don't talk about the family on a run to Egypt hoping to save their lives as refugees while the angels were singing, trust me, in the the nether regions of hell, the demons were screaming. We don't ever have a a look into that aspect of this invasion. The invasion of God to earth set off a violent chain reaction in the spiritual world world that, that signaled war from heaven to hell. God was coming to save people through Jesus Christ and Satan was going to do everything that he could to interrupt that plan. Friends, this morning, what image does Christmas typically conjure up for you? For most of us, it's a a baby lying in a manger while Mary and Joseph and angels and assorted beasts look on. You might even have uh, inappropriately placed in your your manger scene like I do. You might have the the, the magi and the shepherds together, right? You might have Jesus in swaddling clothes. But Christmas is much more than a child's birth, even a Savior's birth. It's about the incarnation, God himself, creator of heaven and earth, the ultimate reality becoming flesh, becoming human. Thirty years after his humbling birth, Jesus increased the Jews' befuddlement when he told his followers, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. In effect, that carpenter's boy, That carpenter's son had just announced that he was the king, an outrageous claim to the Jews. It was so radical that people wanted to kill him for it that very day. They wanted to stone him for it. Again, the evil world revolted against Jesus. Even his own family would reject him. This Christmas, 
Continue to decorate the trees as I certainly will and arrange your nativities and light your houses, but do so in the light of this beautiful and earth-shaking truth. The birth of the baby Jesus in the manger was a thrilling signal that God had invaded the planet and the planet would have none of it. Satan would have none of it. Oh, what love that God has for us that he sent Jesus to earth, not as a conquering hero or a conquering force, but as a quiet hero, as a baby. Jesus came to the low, to the bottom, so that everyone might hear his message of salvation. Know this, that while he came as a baby, his return will be drastically different. Did you hear what I said this morning? While he came as a baby the first time around, his return the second time around will look vastly, drastically different. The first time Jesus came unnoticed, the second time the Bible tells us that every eye will see him. In his first coming, Jesus humbled himself, being born in a stable in Bethlehem. When he returns, he will come back as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In his first coming, he endured the mockery of men who despised him for his goodness. Although he was the Son of God, he allowed them to put him to death that he might thereby provide salvation for the world. When he comes again, all that mockery will cease for all, for he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He came the first time as a lamb of God. He comes again as the lion of the tribe of Judah. 2,000 years ago, the religious leaders shouted in scorn. He saved others, but he can't save himself. And the day is coming when the whole world will see Jesus as he really is. And when this happens, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What an awesome day that's going to be. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear what? A second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So let's move to Roman numeral 3. John chapter 1 captures God's affection for us in this. We see God's love and John's witness for us. He gives us a passion, a plan, and a purpose for our lives. But then we also come to this war that was initiated through the incarnation of Christ, this, love born of, this war born of love. But then we also have Roman numeral three. We see Jesus' works. We see that Jesus loves us, that he loves you and me because of the works that he did. The most beautiful part, I think, of John chapter one is what I'm about to read to you. In verse 12, it says, but to all those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave a right to become children of God. And listen to verse 13. Who were born not of Not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So we weren't born into this. So this salvation that we have, this new inheritance that we have, this new family that we have, this new ability to connect with God did not happen because of anything that we did. We did not will it to happen. We did not will it. We didn't say, oh God, this is what we want. No, God gave it to us even when we didn't know he wanted it. And we weren't born into it. You see, my children are born into my family. They share my DNA. They have my last name. Therefore, they have what I have. Eventually, I'm going to be dead and gone. And everything that I have will eventually become theirs. And as long as they live underneath my roof, they're going to be blessed because they live in my roof. 
They'll have money, they'll have clothing, they'll have food, they'll have education. All the things that we would normally provide for our children, they're born into. But see, we were not born into God's family. We don't have God's DNA in us. What, what John is trying to tell us is this idea of adoption, which, by the way, is something that I know a little something about. I know a little bit about adoption. And Jet is my son. You'll see a picture of him right there. Everybody go, aw, he is really cute. You want to hear a cheesy dad joke? Whenever I, I walk around with Jet, and they're like, he is so cute. And you know what I tell him? He looks like his daddy. I wish Ray was up here. He could probably give me a rim shot. There you go. He is cute. Jet is my son. He is my son. No doubt. So like when I talk about my children, I don't say that I have two sons and one son. I don't even say that I've got two biological children and one adopted son. I don't even do that. I tell people I have three children. And I do. I have three children. Jed is my son, even though he does not share my DNA. Even though he doesn't share my DNA. There are times when, as any six-year-old would, Jet will sometimes disobey. And he'll say no, or he'll do what any normal kid goes. And there are times where I'll go to Angela and I said, I wish I could find his biological father. I wish I could find that kid's mom because I didn't teach him that. That's straight biology right there. Now, he doesn't share my DNA. I think we all know that. But he's been adopted into my family, not by any work that he did. As a matter of fact, when Angela and I came to China and met Jet, guess what? Jet had no clue he needed to be adopted. As far as Jet was concerned, Jet was living a good life. He was doing fine. He was eating a little bit, drinking a little bit, had some friends around, had some folks that were taking care of him. In just mind, he had no idea that there was a better place, a better way, a better family, just better. He had no idea. So when we showed up, he looked at us like we had three eyeballs growing out of our head. Why are you people here? I didn't ask for you. But yet we came for him, even though he didn't know he needed it. So he's my son. He doesn't share my DNA. He has been adopted into my family, not by any work that he did, but by the work that Angela and I did for him. And to expound on that, on the work that many of you did for him. He was the beneficiary of adoption through someone else's work, even though he was not born into the family. Do you see the point, the correlation that I'm making here from John chapter 1? Because of this, he is my son, and he has access to an inheritance. He has access to a home. He even has access to a brand new name. When we went over there, Jet was not named Jet. He had a different name. He had a Chinese name. And we discarded that Chinese name like we discarded an old person, an old, uh, an old creation, and we gave him a new name because, in effect, when he came home with us, he became a new creation. And everything about Jet's life radically changed. 
radically changed. I remember as we left Hong Kong with Jet, and we were told at the Chinese consulate that when we left Hong Kong and as we were in the air between Hong Kong and Chicago, that Jet did not have citizenship anywhere on planet Earth. Isn't that weird? Can you imagine being a a human being not having a citizenship anywhere? But they told us that the moment that the wheels of that Delta plane landed in Chicago, that the second that those wheels touched down, that Jet Davidson left his old Chinese name and became an American citizen and had all the rights of an American citizen given to him the moment that plane landed. That's amazing, isn't it? Well, friend, let me tell you, When you come to know Jesus, you need to understand that when Jesus takes over your heart, he gives you a new inheritance, a new home. He gives you a new address. You leave the citizenship of this dead earthly world, and you are now born into a new kingdom with all the rights and vestiges of that new kingdom. You now have a new father, a new name. You're a new creation. Set forth from the beginning of time, God wants you. It's a beautiful story. Jesus, what John is trying to say here is because he came for us, we have the opportunity to be born again. We have the opportunity to know God all through him and our life can be radically changed and radically different. You can leave the old you behind and you can accept the new you because you've been adopted into a new family. We call this being born again. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, Paul's words, for it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no man may boast. This morning, I want to ask you a really important question. Have you encountered this Jesus? This Jesus that came here for me, this Jesus that came here for you, do you know him? Have you been adopted into his family? If you haven't, I want to show you the way. Oh, it's so easy. What's the path? Well, the first step is to admit that you're a sinner, that you are in need of salvation, that without Jesus, you would be eternally separated from God. And that is not God's desire for anybody. It's not God's desire to send anybody away from him. He's provided the one access point to him. We have to admit that we're a sinner. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Paul tells us that, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The second step is to believe, to believe that Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus said numerous times over and over that he was the Messiah. He even tells his disciples that when you want to think about God, look at me and you've seen him. When you want to look at the Father, just look right here. I and the Father are one. The Bible tells us in John chapter 14, 6, that Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father unless he comes through me. He's the only door, the only access point to heaven. If you try to get there through any other means, you're going to come up short. What a wonderful thing that he's provided this one access point. And then lastly, we have to confess. Confess and come out of our lives to Jesus. In Romans chapter 10, verse 13, it says, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that a great thing? That everyone includes me and you. And at some point, everyone was me and you. That means that nobody's too far gone. Nobody, we shouldn't give up on anybody because anybody that says yes to Jesus, they can be welcomed in to God's family. It's never too late.